This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. Independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 14, Episode 1, Ulysses, A Reader's Odyssey. In conversation with Ireland's ambassador to the United States, Daniel Mulhall. February 2nd, 2022, marked the 100th anniversary of the publication of James Joyce's novel, Ulysses. Regarded as one of the greatest works of fiction of the 20th century, it's a big book, literally and figuratively. 750 pages, 265,000 words, and 18 episodes. It was also marked by controversy and censored when first published. With us today to talk about James Joyce and Ulysses is Ambassador Dan Mulhall, Ireland's ambassador in Washington, and a dedicated student of James Joyce. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you. It's good to be here. Dan, let's begin with your career as a diplomat representing Ireland around the world. And then talk to us about the role of soft diplomacy through Irish literature, like Joyce's work and Yeats's poetry, that Ireland displays around the world. Yes, well, I've been a diplomat now for 44 years, so I'm, I'm very long in the tooth when it comes to diplomacy. I suppose when I started in the, the early 80s on my diplomatic odyssey, soft power would have been seen as a rather limited domain. But I think over the years in between, we've seen how the limitations of, of hard power have been graphically highlighted in so many places around the world where powerful countries have not been able to assert themselves in situations where maybe their hard power ought to have been decisive. So I believe that over that period, there's been a greater appreciation in international affairs for the for the power of the soft approaches to international affairs. And I've always sought to to draw on Irish literature as a way of presenting my country to the wider world. We are blessed in Ireland with the fact that we have so many great writers that have emerged from Ireland that have attracted uh, global audiences. So one of the ways in which we can make Ireland better known to the world is to draw on these writers and to remind people that those writers are Irish writers and that what they bring to the world is something that is intrinsic to our country, to our island nation. And, you know, without our literature, our country would not be as well known in the world as it now is. And so, therefore, I've always been uh, keen to use the work of William Butler Yeats, of James Joyce, of Sean O'Casey, the playwright, of Samuel Beckett. Different countries, there's a different interest level in different Irish writers, but generally Joyce and Yeats would be renowned wherever you go in the world. I mean, I've spoken about Yeats and Joyce in India, in Malaysia, uh-huh. places far removed from Ireland. So that is really my approach to diplomacy has been influenced very heavily by my experience and by my realization that our literature has more value to us than its pure aesthetic relevance. In other words, our literature puts Ireland in the uh, shop window. It presents us to the world in ways that can be very compelling and that draw people towards Ireland who would otherwise perhaps have no interest in our affairs. Well, Dan, what inspired you to write your book, Ulysses, 
a reader's odyssey. But before you answer that question, could you give me and our listeners a synopsis of James Joyce's classic Ulysses? That's a very difficult question to answer (laughs) because while it's a big book, not much happens in the book. It is an odyssey because it is loosely modeled on Homer's odyssey, but it's an odyssey in language. So you have a lot of wonderfully inventive pieces of writing. Joyce uses a whole range of literary styles in the novel. It's also an odyssey in the history of that time. So it explores the Ireland of the early 20th century in forensic detail. And then finally, it's an odyssey of character because most of the novel is taken up with exploring the internal the internal furniture of the the three main characters in the novel and so if i had to summarize the novel briefly i would say it's a story about two men leopold bloom an unsuccessful advertising salesman with an unfaithful wife who spends his day wandering around dublin A second character, Stephen Dedalus, who's loosely based on the author James Joyce himself, who is a young, aspiring writer. He also ends up wandering around Dublin. Towards the end of the day, the two of them meet, and they form a sort of a limited relationship. You might regard it as a kind of a limited father-son type relationship, but very limited. They end up together at Bloom's home late in that evening or early in the following morning of the 17th of June, 1904, and then... Uh, Leopold Bloom and uh, Stephen Dedalus have a conversation and then Dedalus goes away, leaves Bloom, and then Bloom goes upstairs to bed where his wife Molly is already half asleep. They have a brief conversation and then the final episode of the novel is takes place within the mind of Molly Bloom as she reviews her life, her relationship with her husband and the day she's had because she's been unfaithful to Leopold Bloom in the course of the day with a man called Blazes Boylan. Bloom has obsessed about this fact all day long, but he doesn't do anything to prevent it. He sort of more or less accepts his lot as someone who's going to be betrayed by his wife. But then in the evening, Bloom comes back to the bed he shares with his wife, Molly. And Molly, in her thoughts, in her rambling thoughts that are spread over 70 pages of Joyce's novel, the final thought that Molly has before she falls asleep is about Leopold Bloom and her first encounter with him on the Hill of Hoth on Dublin Bay 16 years before. Mm -hmm. That's the story in a nutshell. In a nutshell. Well, Dan, what was your introduction to Ulysses, number one? And number two, again, what was your inspiration for writing your book, which which I found to be very compelling and, and really helped me answer a lot of the questions that I have had about this, about Ulysses? Yes, well, I suppose I'm always excited by centenaries, and I could see the centenary of Ulysses uh, coming up 2022 this year. So a few years ago, I started writing a blog on Ulysses, and I posted quite a few blogs on the embassy website. And then eventually, when the pandemic came, I realized that I would actually be able to finish my work on the novel in time to have it published in 2022, which is what I did. So this is essentially my pandemic book. It was inspired by the centenary of the publication of Ulysses, but it was also 
uh, brought about by the fact that for a year I was holed up here at the embassy with not much in the way of social life as nobody had. And I decided to spend my spare time, my you know, the time I would have spent out and doing the work of an ambassador in the evening, socializing and going to events. I spent that time finishing my book and finally published it earlier this year. The second reason why I decided to write this book is because I've been carrying James Joyce's book around with me for the last 40 years. I left Ireland for the first time as a diplomat in in March of, of 1980. And in my small consignment of personal effects, I had my small, at that time, small library. Uh-huh. And that library of books included a copy of James Joyce's Ulysses, which I bought when I was a J-1 student uh, in the summer of 1974 in Kansas City. And I had the book. I never finished it. When I, when I was a student, I didn't manage to get through it. I gave it up after about six or seven episodes, chapters, and I put it aside. But I brought it with me to India, and I had it bound in leather in India. Uh-huh. I have it in front of me as we speak. And I finally realized that that book had been a traveling companion of mine for the last 42 years. And I decided it was about time that I delved into it properly and wrote something about it that might help people around the world to come to terms with what is undoubtedly a rather difficult novel, a difficult novel to read for the ordinary reader. There are 18 episodes in the book. I guess episodes is another way of saying chapters. Chapters, yeah. yeah. And in your book, you focused on you focused on about seven or eight of these chapters as being exceptionally important. And I, I read all of them. And as I said, it really did. It gave me it gave me a sense of uh, a sense of what was going on, why this was important. Well, let's yeah. let's come back to the end. You, you referred to Molly Bloom's soliloquy at the end of the book where that goes on for 62 pages. There's no punctuation marks. It's stream of consciousness. Could you tell us about the stream of consciousness style that James Joyce used both certainly in, in Molly Bloom's soliloquy and then also in the musings of Leopold Bloom and Stephen Daedalus, the other yes. two protagonists. Tell us about That's that right. style of writing. Joyce realized that in the 20th century, with film had become a popular medium by the time Joyce sat down to write his novel. And I think he understood that the old style of novel writing, you know, the 19th century Victorian novel, which described everything in detail and mm-hmm. so on, which is essentially a novel where it's told a story and it describes things uh, in very nice prose. And that was what the novelist did in the 19th century. I think Joyce realized that in the 20th century, something somewhat different was required because the 20th century is a different environment. People had different outlooks. Remember, Joyce's novel was written during and after the First World War. The First World War created a huge cataclysm for, for humanity. All that confidence that people had in the 19th century of that progress was going to lead to a kind of a, a future that would be so, something close to perfect. That was all shattered by the by the violence of the First World War. I think Joyce understood that a different kind of writing was required in order to convey an understanding of the lives of people in the 20th century. So instead of describing things like a narrator, he actually takes you inside the mind of the characters. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it can be difficult for the ordinary reader to to realize when he's describing something that's been seen and when he's having a thought 
purpose. But a lot of what you find in the novel is actually the thoughts running through the mind of Leopold Bloom or Stephen Dedalus or Molly Bloom. And those thoughts give us an understanding of those characters that is beyond anything that you find in a 19th century novelist. Because what you get with Leopold Bloom is his quirky thoughts. I mean, his thoughts go all over the place because, mm-hmm. you know, he's sometimes he's thinking about his daughter who moved away to another town in Ireland and he's concerned about her. Other times he, he sort of mourns the fact that his, his son Rudy died, died in childbirth and he never, never had a son to bring up. Other times he thinks about Molly and her infidelity. He thinks about his first meetings with her and all of that. So you, you get a very rich understanding of this very ordinary Dublin. And remember, the great thing about Joyce's characters is that they're not heroic in any normal sense mm-hmm. of that word. So, for example, even though Leopold Bloom is the equivalent of Odysseus in Homer's Odyssey or Ulysses in the Latin version of the Odyssey, unlike Odysseus or Ulysses, he has absolutely no heroic characters at all, <laughs> except that he exhibits the kind of everyday heroism, heroism that heroism that I think people need to, to live in the kind of world that we live in for the last hundred years. In other words, he, he has this kind of, he, he's indefatigable. He is, he is persistent. He, even though life doesn't exactly treat him brilliantly, he, he endures and he takes a kind of a satisfaction in the everyday things of life. And that is the kind of heroism that I think Joyce wanted to celebrate. When James Joyce crafted Leopold Bloom and Molly and Stephen Daedalus, did he draw on any of his previous novels, his previous characters, or was this stream of consciousness style something entirely new and different from his previous work? It was new and different. His two previous work, collection of short stories called Dubliners, these short stories are, are very fine short stories, but they are more conventional. They're more like short stories that you might have might have seen in the 19th century. Likewise, a portrait of the artist as a young man is it's a it's a very fine novel. It's a it's a modern novel. It's a novel that is groundbreaking in certain ways, but it doesn't have the the kind of stream of consciousness that you get in Ulysses. Other novels before Joyce had used this technique, so he didn't necessarily invent it, but he was certainly the first one to to make a major novel out of a stream of consciousness technique. Early on, you talked about the three odysseys within this book, an odyssey of character, and we've touched on that already, an odyssey of language and an odyssey of the way of the world. Now, first of all, for the benefit of our, of our listeners, the definition of an odyssey, my definition of it, and I remember reading the Odyssey and the Iliad when I was in high school, the definition of an, of an odyssey, as I understand it, is a long and adventurous journey of experience. So we certainly get that in the musings of Leopold Bloom, Stephen Daedalus, and Molly Bloom and her closing soliloquy. Talk to me about the unique language, the odyssey of language in this book, because on the one hand, the language that James Joyce uses in this book 
is brilliant. It's well crafted. It, it took him what four years to write this seven book. Seven years to seven, write the book. Seven years to write the book. Seven years is a long time. T- talk to me about the the odyssey of the language of this book because that's sometimes sometimes readers will get stumped by the language and kind of abandon yes. reading the book. Talk to me about the odyssey of language in this book. Yes. Well, the early chapters of Ulysses, the first two chapters are fairly conventional. And I don't think any serious reader will have any problem with the first two chapters or episodes of Ulysses. When you get to the third episode, a lot of people come grief at episode three, because it starts with the line, ineluctable modality of the visible. <laughs> yes, that's quite that a is, uh, That is a stump. That, that, <laughs> that, that was stump a lot of people. Yes. And of course, today you can take out your phone and you can Google those words and you can probably figure out what it means. And then that that episode continues in that vein. In other words, the language is very rich, but perhaps it doesn't exactly make for easy reading because you're not getting stuff explained to you in the way you would have the experience of in a normal conventional novel. You're getting, you're getting a kind of a, again there, you're getting a stream of consciousness, but this time it's the consciousness not of Leopold Bloom, who's your ordinary Dubliner, uh, fairly kind of, you know, average intelligence, averagely kind of, in every way, Mr. Average. But in the case of Stephen Dedalus, you're getting an interior monologue or a stream of consciousness in the mind of somebody who is rather pretentiously literary. So you get endless references to literature and philosophy and so forth. So that makes it a very difficult read. And also he combines words. So a lot of words are run together and so forth. So that's that poses difficulty. But it is also, if you read it carefully, it's a rich language, but it's not a language that makes it easy for the reader to glide through the pages. You've really got to read it. And in fact, in my view, you've probably got to read it aloud. Or uh, if you uh, can't do that, then get a... Um, get a dramatized reading of the book because there's a very good uh, reading of Ulysses uh, done by Irish Radio back in the 1980s, which is still available as a podcast. Uh, it's from RTE, the Irish um, National Broadcaster. And that's very good. And if you listen to that episode three or chapter three, if you listen to it being read, you sort of get a lot more out of it, I think, because Joyce was a very musical. He had a very musical ear. So the language is very often sound very impressive, even though you sometimes struggle to figure out what Joyce is trying to say to you. And then later on in the novel, it gets really very difficult because you have in a chapter called Oxen of the Sun, Joyce, it's about a hundred pages long, that, that chapter, and Joyce mimics every literary style from <laughs> Anglo-Saxon in the Middle Ages uh-huh. to 20th century American advertising language. So that is an extraordinary journey through the English language. And I think it's a little bit over the top because I think at times Joyce is clearly showing off. He's clearly showing his reader how good a, how good a mimic he is, how good a writer he is that he can mimic all these different literary styles. And then of course, in Molly Bloom's soliloquy, you get wonderful language, but with no punctuation, which means that the reader really has to, to work hard to kind of figure out what where one sentence ends and the other one begins and then there are other chapters as well like for example my favorite chapter is the cyclops chapter which is very enjoyable and uh, very lively it's like there's in a pub in dublin 
uh, Barney Kiernan's on Little Britain Street. And the great thing about the Cyclops chapter is that it's written in a relatively conversational style. But then every few pages, Joyce departs into a, an extraordinary linguistic feast where he <laughs> he starts to to write in a in a kind of a gargantuan style with uh, with with, with uh, he calls it a gigantism that he, he he sort of something that one of the characters says stimulates one of these asides which can go on for about two or three pages where he he goes into orbit and the language becomes really very rich and perhaps over the top but very exuberant language and that's another example of Joyce as a as a brilliant writer but sometimes causing his readers a lot of anguish because they find it difficult to follow him on this linguistic journey. In your book, you mentioned that you've read Ulysses numerous times and that each time that you read it, you find something new, you find something different in the language. Can you give us an example of something that something that you've recently discovered in uh, in Ulysses when you first read it in 1974, yeah. and then you're reading it again in 2022, and you're discovering something new again? Well, but let me let me give you one example of that. And um, recently, I, I was reading the Eumaeus episode which takes place in a cabman shelter on the River Liffey late at night on the 16th of June, 1904. And Bloom and Stephen Dedalus have just come from Dublin's then Red Light District. And they, they need a cup of coffee. And they go in uh, to this shelter, this sort of cabin shelter, and they order a cup of coffee and a bun. Yes. Because they've been out for a long time. And uh, Stephen certainly has been drinking. Uh, Bloom hasn't been. But they're both very tired. And they sit down and they start to talk. For the first time, the two of them actually have a proper conversation. They've been in each other's company for a few hours, but not really talking very much, just 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 together in the same room. And in the course of this conversation, Bloom sets out his political philosophy. And he says that he thinks that everyone should be entitled to a tidy-sized income (laughs) of about £300 per annum. Mm -hmm. And that is a, a, a basic minimum income idea. Now, I didn't, when I first read that, I wouldn't have thought anything about that idea. But now I realize that here you have Leopold Bloom in 1904 talking about the idea of a garant, of a basic minimum income, yes. which is something that countries around the world have been thinking about in recent times. Yes. How do we guarantee people that they can have enough money to be able to uh, support themselves and their family? And some countries are, are thinking about the idea of a basic minimum income. So for me, that was a kind of a revelation that there's a lot to... Ulysses that's quite contemporary and another example of that is is a line that I that I keep quoting recently which I never quoted before which is where Leopold Bloom is being challenged by some of the other characters in the pub in the Cyclops episode and they question his nationality they don't really believe he's an ordinary Irishman because he has a Jewish Hungarian background so he's a little bit exotic for their tastes and he cuts loose, and for the first time in the novel, he actually expresses his opinion strongly. Uh-huh. And he says the following, force, hatred, history. That is no life for man and woman. When it's the opposite of that, it's really life. When the other character says, what do you mean? He says, love, the opposite of hatred. Now, thinking about what's happening in Ukraine at the moment, mm-hmm. force, hatred, history. 
Vladimir Putin has unleashed force against the people of Ukraine because he believes that by using force, he can get what he wants. Mm -hmm. Okay, He's also drawing on his own version of Russian history, which other people wouldn't agree with, but he is insisting that his idea of, of Russian history must prevail. And then, of course, he's unleashed hatred against the misfortune of people in Ukraine. So there you have James Joyce, again, through Leopold Bloom, expressing sentiments that have a relevance to the world in which we live in this very day, this very year of 2022, when we've had this horrible war unleashed by Russia against the misfortune of people of Ukraine. On the topic of language, there are a couple of turns and twists in the text which are quintessentially Irish. I don't have the exact quote, but I'm sure you'll remember it, where he talks about the the half the thirst and a half crown. What what is it? Do you, do you recall what that quote is? Dan? Yeah, he says, "I I have a thirst on me. I wouldn't sell it for half a crown." So, <laughs> could could you explain that to? Could you explain well, that to me and our I listeners? Mean, what does I, that does it? What does that mean? Course, I mean, a half a crown was probably the equivalent. Uh, I mean, today of about maybe a quarter, so not very much. But in those days, of course, a half a crown was a lot of money yes. and, and I suppose probably would have bought you um, you know maybe I don't know maybe 10 pints of beer or bought you a round of beer for all your friends in the pub so half a pound was a fair bit of money so what he's saying is that I have such a thirst on me yes. that I wouldn't sell the thirst even if you gave me a half a pound <laughs> for my thirst in other words he's so keen to slake his thirst that he wouldn't sell it even for a significant amount of money. I, you know, you have to, there's so much crammed into what Joyce wrote there. Your explanation, I think, makes it very makes it very clear. It's a, it's a very lyrical and wonderful way of stating, I'm really thirsty. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't give, I wouldn't, give up that thirst for anything on the final final thoughts on language of course in 1904 at the turn of the the 20th century ireland was working towards its independence and part of its independence was a language movement where the gaelic league was looking to reestablish the irish language gaelic as the Correct. national language so language was a big political issue in ireland at the time but it the was, yes. but, but so was there uh, but by the same token you have one of the one of the greatest books of the english the english language yeah. written by james joyce at that time why yes. did he why did he opt to write in English ra rather than Gaelic? What was, yeah. because it was such a, a hot topic, the, the subject of uh, Irish language. Yeah. yeah, the Gaelic League was founded in 1893. And by 1904, most middle-class Irish people were probably taking Gaelic language lessons and going to the west of Ireland for their holidays every summer to mix with people who spoke Irish or Gaelic as a native language and trying to improve their Gaelic. Many of those who were involved in the Easter Rising of 1916 were also Gaelic language enthusiasts. Two of the leaders of the Easter Rising, Patrick Pearson and Thomas McDonough, both poets, both also Irish language enthusiasts. So there was a big debate going on in Ireland around that time about could you have a literature for Ireland in the English language. And some people said, no, you can't. It has to be in Gaelic. Otherwise, it's not really Irish. But writers like William Butler Yeats insisted that you could have a language, a, a literature that was thoroughly Irish, 
but written in the English language. So Yeats's idea was that Irish writing would be based on the folklore of Ireland. It would be based on Irish mythology and the landscape of Ireland and so on. And Yeats wrote so many poems set in Ireland, but he insisted that it should be written in the English language because Yeats himself, of course, never spoke hardly a word of Irish. Now, James Joyce did take some Irish language lessons. In fact, his teacher was Patrick Pierce, who ended up as one of the leaders of the Easter Rising of 1916. Uh But Joyce quickly tired of the idea of trying to master the Irish language. He knew that he was a master of the English language and he wasn't going to deflect uh, deflect his his efforts into trying to conquer or trying to uh, become a master of a different language that actually his family didn't speak. So Joyce was exactly the same age as the leaders of the Easter Rising. But whereas they decided to stay at home and struggle for Irish freedom in Ireland, Joyce decided to leave Ireland and spend the rest of his life on the European mainland and did a service to Ireland by examining Ireland, by depicting Ireland, by exploring Ireland, but from the distance of Trieste, Zurich and Paris, the three cities where Ulysses was written. So Joyce's choice was to not stay in Ireland and try to become an Irish writer writing in, living in Ireland and writing in the Irish language, but rather to go away from Ireland and to examine Ireland from a distance. So, for example, in a portrait of the artist as a young man, there's a famous passage where Stephen Dedalus, who's also a character in Joyce's earlier novel, says, when a soul is born in Ireland, nets are thrown around it. The nets of language nationality and religion Uh and he says i want to fly those nets and to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race so that was joyce's declaration that he was going to leave ireland and he was going to to look into his soul and create an identity for ireland but one that would not be held back by living in ireland and having to deal with the restrictions placed on him by language, nationality, and religion. What a what a beautifully poetic goal that he articulated. And Dan, our third odyssey that you outlined was the ways of the world. Now, of course, in 1904, Ireland was going through a gargantuan struggle of trying to get home rule, trying to create its own independence. Of course, we talked about the establishment of the Irish language, Irish sports, etc. But let's come back to the backdrop of what was going on politically as Miss as Stephen Daedalus and Leopold Bloom and Molly Bloom are spending this day on June 16th, but there was a huge ferment politically as a backdrop on that day and that period of time, right, with Irish politics. Yes. I have always approached Ulysses as a work that gives you a window on the history of Ireland in the early part of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And for me, the novel is set in 1904 at a time when Ireland was on the cusp of change. Yes, The old world of the 19th century was dying off and becoming the past. Mm -hmm. And a new world hadn't yet been born, the world of the independence struggle that occurred in the decade after 1914, after the outbreak of the First World War. So I 
But of course, Joyce was writing the novel between 1914 and 1921, but looking back 10 years to a previous Ireland, the Ireland he left. But I think, for me at least, I see that portrait of Ireland in 1904 as a portrait of a country that's teetering on the brink of political change. And if you look at the the Cyclops chapter, which is my favorite chapter, chapter 12, it's a brilliant exploration of the idea of national identity because one of the characters, the main character in that chapter is called The Citizen. And he is a kind of a one-eyed nationalist, a very colorful and exuberant nationalist who uses some fairly choice language to criticize British rule in Ireland and to look forward to an independent Ireland. But of course, that kind of nationalism, that kind of cultural nationalism, was important in in setting the the stage for what happened in, in 1916, when people like Patrick Pierce and Thomas McDonough, both writers, both academics, were moved from being cultural nationalists, like you saw in the Cyclops chapter, to being actual revolutionaries who organized a rebellion, which six years later led to the independence of Ireland in 1922. And so when I wrote my book about Ulysses, A Reader's Odyssey, I was also celebrating not just 100 years of Ulysses, but also 100 years of the independent Irish state that I have represented for the last 44 years, and that is exactly the same age as Joyce's great novel. Dan, what do you think accounts for the international fascination with this book, with James Joyce, with Leopold Bloom? In your your book, you recount that you had Bloomsday observances in Kuala Lumpur, in Malaysia, in in India. You addressed an audience of 1,500 people talking about Ulysses. You talked about in Berlin, when you were the ambassador there, uh, Bloomsday observances. What What is it about this book, the characters, James Joyce, all of the above, that resonates Right across the board, whether it's Asia, Germany, the United States, of course, Ireland, Britain, what is it? What is it about this book that uh, that is so compelling? It's a bit like Mount Everest. I wouldn't necessarily be able to climb Mount Everest, but there are some people who absolutely must climb it, right? And then, but you know, but most of us around the world are at least aware that Mount Everest is there. And we're aware that it would be nice, wouldn't it, to get to the highest point in the world, to be able to look down over and get that great vista from the peak of Mount Everest. So I think to some degree, Ulysses is a similar phenomenon. Because of the way it emerged and the way it was censored and the way it was infamous at the time and and not talked about and, and smuggled into America, smuggled into Britain, published in Paris by an American publisher... I think it just it just gave the book the kind of mystique that made it into a kind of a monument of 20th century literature. And remember, it came out in 1922. And the other great work that came out that year was T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Mm-hmm. So there was something about that year, 1922. I think it was that that was really the first year that was genuinely post-First World War. Because remember, you had a lot of upheavals and and so on in the post-First World War period. And I think by 1922, 
we were definitely in the Roaring Twenties to the post-First World War era. And those two great works of art are still revered today, came out in that year when I think the world was beginning to regain its equilibrium again after the shock of the First World War and all the slaughter that occurred on the battlefields of Europe and beyond. And also, of course, there was a pandemic. Yes. Which went on from 1918 to 1920. So the world was just getting back on its feet again in 1922. And those two great works, I think, became canonical. They became iconic. And they've retained that iconic status ever since over the generations. And, of course, the great thing about Joyce's novel is that it's so complex and it's so, you see, it can be read. I believe you can read just the Cyclops chapter and laugh at it and enjoy it and think it's a wonderful piece of writing. You could read maybe six chapters from Ulysses, and to me, that would be a sufficient for, for many people. They may not want to read all 18 chapters because some of the chapters are genuinely very difficult to manage. But also, you can turn Ulysses into a lifelong mission, a lifelong odyssey, because I still believe that when I go back to the novel next time round, I will find many new things that I hadn't spotted before, because it is like a bottomless well. And some people like climbing high mountains and, and getting to the bottom of bottomless wells and trying to find all those riches that Joyce put into the novel, which come out not immediately, but sometimes takes multiple readings. In fact, somebody recently said, uh, an Irish writer, Anne Enright, recently wrote about Ulysses that don't, don't worry if you can't finish it because nobody ever finishes it. <laughs> the reason nobody ever finishes Ulysses is because every time you read it, you will find new things there. So in that sense, you can never finish it. It's not like a detective novel where once you find out who did the murder or who did the bank robbery, you've, you've actually got to the end of the novel. But in Ulysses, because it's a novel of language and character and the way of the world, there are endless ways in which you can navigate your way through the novel. Dan, for many of our listeners, the concept of Bloomsday is probably a new concept. Here in San Francisco, for instance, Bloomsday, which is June 16th, it'll be June 16th, 2022, which commemorates the day that Leopold Bloom and Stephen Daedalus and Molly, the novel took place. There will be an observance here in San Francisco. There will be a, an observance over at the UC Berkeley campus. Any other observances? Of course, I would oh, imagine yeah. at the embassy in Washington. Well, I, I'm going to have a pretty busy uh, Bloomsday this year, as you can imagine, because this is the secure of the novel. So this is going to be a whopping big Bloomsday. It's going to be uh, bigger than ever, I believe. Uh -huh. And uh, I'll be in New York on the 15th of January at the Irish uh, talking about uh, Joyce and Ulysses. Uh, I'll then probably end up at the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia where the original manuscript of Ulysses is located and they organize a 10-hour reading of the novel on the street outside the uh, museum, which is wonderful. And the weather is usually kind uh, that time of year in Philadelphia. And then I'll come back to the embassy here for our own Bloomsday. And we're planning to have a really big Bloomsday at the embassy this year with lots of readers and lots of uh, singing because Ulysses is full of references to songs and therefore I like to have those songs performed on Bloomsday so as to 
uh, make sure that everyone enters into the spirit of the occasion. And there's normally a group of people in Washington, D.C. who come dressed in period costume, oh, yes. who cycle up to us, <laughs> come into the embassy in, in uh, costume from the early 20th century. And that gives a certain kind of novel feel to our embassy on that day when we turn the clock back to Ireland on the 16th of January, or 16th of June, 1904. And Dan, on the embassy's website, will will these observances be listed? We will be uh, we will be doing a lot of things. In fact, our government has a has a website to promote and to publicize all of the events taking place all over the world to celebrate the hundredth anniversary of James Joyce's Ulysses. And that website will be full of information when it comes to Bloomsday, the sixteenth of June this year. Dan, in our the remaining few minutes of our podcast, do you have some closing thoughts for our listeners who, particularly listeners who haven't read Ulysses or who tried to read it and abandoned yeah. it? And now, of course, with your book, they have they have a companion, they have a guide, they have a roadmap, yeah. if you will. Any closing well, thoughts for the listeners? Well, I think I recommend my book, obviously, because I, <laughs> I, I worked hard to make it readable and to make it useful to the ordinary reader, the non-academic, the non-student, the non-expert reader. I also say in my book that it's perfectly all right to skip bits of Ulysses that you find difficult. Mm -hmm. So my recommendation is that you go for reading chapter one, chapter two, chapter four, chapter six, Mm -hmm. chapter eight, chapter 12, and chapter 18. And for me, that will give most people a really good flavor of what the novel is all about. And they don't need to worry about the bits in between that they haven't managed to read. Because, but when they, when they do the, when they read those chapters mm-hmm. and come to the end and finish Molly Bloom's soliloquy, then I think they might be encouraged to go back and read the other episodes. But it's not necessary. It's not like a detective novel. Mm-hmm. You don't have to get the clues in chapter two to understand chapter three because it's not that kind of story. Mm-hmm. But the first two chapters will give you an introduction to Stephen Dedalus. Mm-hmm. The fourth chapter gives you an introduction to Leopold Bloom. Yes. The sixth chapter, you see Leopold Bloom going to a funeral and with other people, and you get an idea of what other people think of Bloom and his... his uh, his weaknesses and his, you know, the problems he faces in fitting in with uh, uh, the kind of society that Dublin was at that time in the early 20th century. The eighth chapter, you see Bloom having his lunch in a pub, which is still there, Davy Burns Pub on Duke Street in Dublin, and you can still have the lunch that Leopold Bloom had uh-huh. that day at the pub. The twelfth chapter, of course, is an exploration of. Irish nationalism and national identity has a wonderful piece of writing, uh, Cyclops. And then, of course, the final chapter, you get to meet Molly Bloom. And even though it's a difficult chapter to read, you really have to read that final chapter because Molly is such an extraordinary character that it would be a shame to finish Ulysses and not to have become acquainted with the great Molly Bloom. Well, Dan, I want to thank you very much for this very enlightening, entertaining, informative talk today. And as I said, reading your book for the first time, I felt as though I I made some headway with Ulysses. So on behalf of all my listeners, Mr. Ambassador, I want to thank you once again for joining us today, for elucidating us on this, this great work of this 20th century masterpiece. 
and look forward to continuing our discussion with you and all the best and good luck on Bloomsday, June 16th, 2022. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And for my listeners, as the San Francisco Experience celebrates its second anniversary, thanks for your ongoing support. We stand at 267 episodes and are featured on 19 podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music, and many more. We also have listeners in 50 countries. Again, this has been the San Francisco Experience coming to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.